Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddy Treg. I'm flying solo today. I've got a special Rocktail Hour. A few months ago, I did a presentation on Bono for the South County chapter of the BYU Management Society. And they recorded it, posted it as a podcast, and were kind enough to allow me to release it as a Rocktail Hour. You can also listen to the original on the Podbean page of the South County Management Society. That's southcountymanagement.podbean.com. There you can also find other podcasts of other great presentations through the Society. The BYU Management Society is a worldwide network of business professionals with a shared vision of moral and ethical leadership and a common code of business conduct and integrity. And the South County Chapter has monthly meetings that include presentations on various leaders in history who provide examples of moral and ethical leadership. Naturally, I chose Bono, who is a hero of mine and is a wonderful philanthropist. I'll apologize in advance. Since it was recorded live, the audio does not have the same studio quality that we like to incorporate into our other Rocktail Hours. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Again, I am Doug Hyam, and I do business and corporate law with a focus on mergers and acquisitions. But now on to the reason we're here, and not to disregard Jenny, but uh, Jenny is Trey's wife, and she is here. Uh, but Treg Julander is an attorney with the Ostergar Law Group based out of Mission Viejo, where his practice includes appeals, construction law, and business litigation. And since 2008, he has also served as general counsel for Advent Companies in San Juan Capistrano, a, a general contractor that builds multifamily housing. Treg is the author of a book called Until Murder Do Us Part, an LDS legal thriller. He also hosts a podcast about rock music called Rock Tale Hour. Treg lives in Rancho Santa Margarita with his wife, Jenny, has two daughters who are away from home, one in Ogden and the other serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in South Carolina. And uh, both are avid U2 fans. Uh, let's welcome Treg to the front. Thank you very much. You know how everybody says that their wife is their better half. My, Jenny is my better three-quarters. She's phenomenal. So this time last year, I, I gave a presentation on Milton Hershey because of my love for chocolate and also my admiration for, for that man. And when Bill asked me to give another presentation, I thought, well, my other love, other than my family, is rock music. So I've got to come up with someone within rock music which isn't typically associated with moral and ethical leadership. How am I going to come up with a, a rock star that demonstrates moral and ethical leadership? And it took only about five minutes before I landed on Bono, as I think you'll find that he is a phenomenal human being, in addition to a, an incredible musician. So Bono was born Paul David Hewson. He was born May 10, 1960, in Dublin, Ireland. He's the second son of Iris Elizabeth Hewson and Brendan Robert Hewson. His father was a post office worker. His brother Norman was seven years old when Bono was born, so there was quite a distance between the two. Bono's mother was Protestant and his father was Roman Catholic. And uh, at, at this time in Northern Ireland, there was a lot of violence between these two groups. And, but that didn't, that didn't deter this couple from marrying, despite the, the resistance to it and the opposition. 
Tradition dictated at that time that children of mixed marriages would be raised Catholic, but Bono's parents decided to to raise their sons as Protestants. Uh, The family attended different churches on Sunday, and this segregation between the, between the, the two different churches inflamed Bono, and it laid the foundations for him and his views about tolerance of people with different faiths. Religious teachings and trappings were an important part of Bono's childhood. Uh, he enjoyed the gripping tales from, from the scriptures and the stories depicted in the beautiful stained glass windows in the churches where he attended. But even more important to him were the uplifting words and music that he heard at church. Oftentimes, he felt confused about his identity. He didn't know whether he should consider himself middle class or working class, or whether he should identify himself as Protestant or Catholic. He later commented that he felt like, he said, I felt like I was always sitting on the fence. Bono attended Dublin's Mount Temple High School, which was Ireland's first interdenominational, co-educational, comprehensive school. And the high school provided Bono with a more free uh, environment in which to study. From a very young age, Bono was very lively and inquisitive. He had an infectious enthusiasm, uh, a thirst for knowledge, and a, and a gift for the gab. But he could also sometimes be headstrong and moody, and because of his uh, moodiness and aggressiveness, some people nicknamed him the Antichrist. Uh, his, uh, his early family, was, family life was not ideal. There were frequent flights. Frequent flight, fights is the word I'm looking for. He fought with his brother a lot. Uh, and Bono blamed himself for that, for fighting with his brother. He, he once admitted that he, that he had no nice childhood memories, which is pretty sad. When Bono was 14, his, his mother died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage. And he, at that point, he hadn't had a close relationship with his mother, but he felt cheated because it denied him of the opportunity to ever have a close relationship with his, with his mother. Norman had already left home, so this left Bono uh, home alone with his father. And uh, as you can imagine, a 14-year-old boy living alone with his father, that, that, that didn't, they didn't get along great. Anger propelled a lot of uh, his youth. He was angry at the rigidity of religion, at capitalist greed, and at the exploitation of the environment in the area in which he lived. Because he was such a challenging youth, it, it seems strange that suddenly at the age of 15, he joined his school's Christian Union. He also developed an interest in girls in his mid-teens. This was common among his classmates. His blue eyes, good looks, cheeky smile, and assertive personality made him successful at winning over the girls. And in his mid-teens, uh, Bono's interest in music blossomed. He was especially attracted to glam rock, which was popular at the time from the 1970s British pop scene because of its showmanship and imagery that appealed to him. In 1976, Bono noticed posted on the bulletin board at the high school that there was a note pinned of uh, uh, a classmate that was interested in forming a rock band. So he showed up at, uh, at the house. The, the note was posted by Larry Mullen, who was a budding drummer. And uh, in addition to Bono, Adam Clayton showed up. He was a bass player as well as two brothers, David Howell Evans and Dick Evans, who both played guitar. Bono didn't have any particular extraordinary musical talent at the time, and he wasn't even a singer, so it was odd that he even showed up. Uh, In fact, Bono said this about his early guitar playing. When we started out, I was the guitar player along with The Edge, and that's, we'll learn in a minute, um, David Evans. Except I couldn't play guitar. I still can't. (laughs) 
I was such a lousy guitar player that one day they broke it to me that maybe I should sing instead. I had tried before, but I had no voice at all. I remember the day I found I could sing. I said, oh, that's how you do it. Uh, Bono had an irresistible optimism and a theatrical flair that made him a natural choice to front the band. Um, Larry Mullen later admitted that he was in charge of the band for about five minutes at this first meeting until Bono arrived. And then his personality just took over. Well, the band initially called themselves Feedback, uh, after the noisy feedback that came from their amps. And the group played covers of current pop songs and also punk songs. Uh, David Evans said that they were the worst cover band in the world. And this experience, and also by, beginning, by getting heckled at, at, uh, in front of audiences and things thrown at them, they decided that they should write their own material. And Bono soon emerged as the band's primary lyricist. Uh, Bono took uh, inspiration from Bruce Springsteen and his ability to maintain his independence and integrity while writing meaningful songs. From the outset, Bono wrote lyrics that reflected his concern over life and death issues, and serious issues about the world as he saw it. At this time, also in, the development, in his development as a youth, he felt like he had no roots. He had a nomadic spirit, and he felt like his house was just a house and not a home. Uh, he did have some roots in the Christian union that he, that he uh, joined, and also in the church. And after several years of trying, he finally won the affections of a dark-haired, beautiful, and intelligent classmate named Allison Stewart. Allie was a strong-willed and independent character who turned Bono into a one-woman man and helped him to establish a more organized approach to life. Outside school, Bono also joined a group called Lipton Village, which is a group of teenagers who would get together and chat and listen to music. And uh, in the Lipton Village, the members were all given alternative names. And the leader of the group decided that Paul Hewson should be called Bono Vox. And Bono quickly dropped the Vox part. He didn't like that. But he didn't like the name much at all until he learned that it translated to good voice. And so when he learned that, he, he accepted it and thought it would be okay. Um, Bono also was the one that gave David Evans the nickname The Edge. And he says that it, this had something to do with the shape of David's skull and... <laughs> and his tendency to stand back and observe groups from the periphery. Uh, so the band uh, initially were called Feedback. They changed their name to The Hype. Uh, they, in, they had lengthy rehearsals, which forged a strong bond of friendship between the group that lasted throughout their careers many, many years. Um, despite Bono's over, overpowering personality, the, the group remained pretty democratic, and Bono later called himself the mechanic of the band. This is the hype. Little clip. Pretty unique. I think that's called Street Mission. It's pretty bad. <laughs> Nowhere to go from up, but up but from that. Uh, there was a, a talent contest that they entered in 1978, about the same time as this. And one of the judges was Jackie Hayden, who was a CBS record executive. And the hype won the contest. They won the 500 pounds prize money. And Hayden was so impressed with their performance that he offered them recording studio time for them to record a demo. After the talent contest, uh, Dick Evans, who was D the Edge's brother, he decided to quit the band and study engineering, which was, I'm sure, the biggest mistake of his life. He, I wonder if that comes up at family reunions, you know. Um, so after Dick Evans quit the band, they changed their name to U2, 
after the American spy plane that the Russians shot down in 1960. And Bottle also liked the inclusionist overtones of the name. Around this time, the band met Bill Graham, who was a journalist with the Irish rock magazine called Hot Press. Uh, he befriended the band and, and uh, wrote a nice article about them, describing them as a promising new Dublin four-piece. Graham also introduced them to his friend Paul McGuinness, who agreed to manage the band and did manage them for many, many years. Uh, Bono continued at this time to search for direction in his life. He, together with Larry Mullen and The Edge, they attended a Christian fellowship twice a week. Uh, Clayton, who was the bass player, he kept his distance from religious groups and, and led, led a different lifestyle. Bono remained fixed on, on pursuing a career in music despite his religious fervor. This was a real struggle for him. Even at a young age, he wasn't attracted to the hedonistic lifestyle of rock stars. Um, but he saw music as an opportunity to, for self-expression and a platform to try and make a difference. One of the first opportunities for him to make a difference came in 1978 when they played at one of the first benefit events that they played, which was to support a movement in Ireland protesting the country's contraception laws. And it was complete with handwritten signs behind the band. Several months later, uh, after the talent contest, Jackie Hayden from CBS Records arranged for another recording session. And these sessions led to a three-year recording contract with CBS Records. But it wasn't an immediate golden ticket because there wasn't a strong uh, rock music presence in Ireland. They didn't have any radio stations that played a lot of rock music, nor rock music press, so they still had a lot of work. But they did develop a good cult following in, in Dublin uh, after a series of performances at, at an indoor car park in Dublin. And in particular, Bono's charisma and energy and his desire to forge an intimate relationship with the audiences uh, contributed to garnering a dedicated group of followers. Bono's goal with his early songs was to promote independence and, and freedom of thought and to explore, explore serious questions of spirituality. That's what this song is about, Out of Control. This was the first single that they released with CBS Records, and it, um, Bono wrote it on his 18th birthday uh, about when he realized that the two biggest events in a person's life, their birth and death, were things that they had no control over, had, that were out of their hands. Uh, around the summer of 1979, as the band gained popularity, they adopted different lifestyles. So Adam Clayton pursued a typical rock musician lifestyle, but Bono, Larry Mullen, and The Edge continued to keep faith with their Christian group, which taught them to completely vanquish all vanity and ego. And so this was a real struggle for, for Bono, because he wanted to, he was a budding rock star. Uh, the band also struggled with its identity, whether they were Christians in a rock group or whether they were a Christian rock group. And so they ultimately came to a compromise that the band, that the Christians in the band would pursue musical success, but in doing so they would shun the traditional pitfalls of uh, substance abuse and womanizing that were typical for rock bands. Instead, they would use any fame that they attained as a power for good. In 1979, Bono saw one of the Secret Policeman's Ball benefit shows uh, by John Cleese. And uh, it was a, a benefit for Amnesty International. And in a Rolling Stone magazine interview, Bono said that this was instrumental in motivating him to become involved in social and political causes. He said that it became a part of me. It sowed a seed. In 1980, U2 was playing to sell out audiences in Ireland, and the big British labels began to notice them. Soon, Island Records made an offer to, uh, to sign the band. 
But Bono and the others in the negotiations insisted that they have a degree of creative control over their record, over their music. U2's debut single for Island Records was 11 o'clock TikTok, which was about the prospect of the world facing its 11th hour. It's not great either, but the music does get much, much better. As the fan base swelled, Bono became a natural magnet for journalists, and he was eager to have the audience and eager, and he was very talkative, so he was, he was great to have a platform. During the early years of the band, before he was able to make significant financial contributions, Bono frequently participated personally in causes that he supported. Uh, for example, there was a, a Dublin drop-in center for down-and-outs that he went to volunteer for. And he also, even later in his career, his, as he was a night owl and he would prowl the cities where, they, where he was touring, he would frequently just hand wads of cash to homeless people living on the street. In 1981, the band released the album October. The album is about the journey of life undergoing trials and achieving spiritual recovery. And it contains uh, many references to Christ. The religious themes turned off some of the band's fans, but U2 planned to continue evolving and changing no matter what anybody thought. Bono married Alison Stewart in August 1982 at the Church of Ireland in Dublin. Always, uh, Alison always remained fiercely independent and preferred to stay out of the limelight Jenny had a very difficult time finding pictures of the two of them together because of that, because she just wanted to have her own independence. And she also worked on great humanitarian projects. Uh, one of the major projects she worked on was the Chernobyl Children's Project, which was to provide medical aid for children affected by the fallout from the 1986 disaster. U2 was among those who were promoting peace in Northern Ireland. In, in 1982, the band found themselves in the same airport departure as, a, as an Irish uh, political leader. And so Bono cornered him and engaged him in conversation about Ireland's problems. And I thought that was kind of odd for a rock musician. Instead of talking about partying and girls, he finds a politician and sits him down and talks about him. And they, they talk for the whole plane ride. This uh, experience caused a strong bond between the men, and, and Bono was later invited to take part in a governmental committee on unemployment. Um, he didn't stick with the committee because it was so rigid, and instead he decided to refocus his concerns on Ireland's troubles in his lyrics. So at a gig in Belfast in October 1982, he introduced a song called Sunday Bloody Sunday. So Bloody Sunday was the name given to an incident that had occurred 10 years earlier during a civil rights demonstration that had turned into a riot. British paratroopers on duty in Londonderry shot 13 people dead and wounded 17 others. Bono's passionate delivery of the song marked the start of him becoming an issues man. U2 released their third album entitled War in February 1983, and it entered the British charts at number one. War was lyrically more political than, the, than their first two records, focusing on the physical and emotional effects of warfare. In which, and the band tried to turn pacifism into a crusade with the album. The band's fourth album was entitled The Unforgettable Fire. The title was inspired by a, pain, by a collection of paintings that the band viewed during a tour of Japan created by survivors of the atomic bombs that were dropped on that country. Standout tracks on the album include Bad, which Bono wrote about friends struggling with heroin addiction, and Pride in the Name of Love, in memory of the murdered civil rights leader, 
Martin Luther King Jr. In November 1984, Bob Geldof was moved by images of famine in Ethiopia, and he produced an all-star charity single. And Bono contributed. He was one of many 36 artists who contributed to the song, Do They Know It's Christmas? The song became the number one Christmas song and raised millions of dollars for famine relief. In July 1985, U2 participated in another charity event engineered by Bob Gildoff called Live Aid. It was a 16-hour marathon gig that was broadcast worldwide to over a billion people. Uh, U2 and other artists benefit, benefited commercially from the event, and this disturbed Bono as he wanted to give, but it certainly raised the, the popularity of the band. So he went with his wife to Ethiopia so that he could see the situation for himself and to offer practical help while he was there for, for the famine relief efforts. They stayed for about a month, and they participated in performing the daily chores around the, uh, the refugee camp. Um, Bono and Ali also wrote a few simple songs that could be translated into the native language that were about cleanliness and personal hygiene so that it could be used to teach the people about the importance and, and how to uh, improve their hygiene. Uh, apartheid was one of the issues that, ba- that Bono was passionate about, and at various times he participated in protest marches against the South African regime. And in November 1985, Bono contributed vocals to a song called Sun City, recorded by artists, against, artists United Against Apartheid. In May 1986, U2 took part in a live all-day event in Dublin called Self-Aid to raise money for long-term unemployed in Ireland. The whole concert is on the internet, and uh, it's pretty great. But they also do this cover of Bob Dylan's um, Maggie's Farm, and he launches into uh, Old MacDonald, which is bizarre, but (laughs) it's good fun. It's worth checking out. Uh, In the summer of 1986, U2 headlined a benefit concert called Conspiracy of Hope to commemorate Amnesty International's 25th anniversary in order to raise funds for the human rights organization. And later that year, Bono and Ali traveled to San Salvador, El Salvador, on a fact-finding mission. The El Salvador government was fighting a socialist guerrilla movement, and Bono learned that people in the region were being rounded up and imprisoned, and he wanted to witness it for himself. But Bono and his wife were shaken up when they found themselves adjacent to a village that was under mortar attack. And also, uh, later on this same trip, they, um, there were some troops who shot warning shots over their head, which really brought the reality of the war to them. In 1987, U2 released their masterpiece, their fifth album, The Joshua Tree. It went platinum in 48 hours and became the fastest-selling album in UK chart history. Uh, in addition to the groundbreaking music, I think it's musical perfection. It is an incredible album. The album also addressed spirituality, social responsibility, morality, and attacked terrorism, injustice, and political oppression. There's a few songs that I want to highlight that are on the album. Um, One of them, Mothers of the Disappeared, which is the last track on the album, it highlighted the situation in El Salvador where young men were going missing without a trace. Bullet the Blue Sky was a scathing attack on U.S. foreign policy. Running to Stand Still was inspired by heroin addiction in, uh, in Dublin, and it personifies the struggles of addiction. Sin, 
and One Tree Hill, which is a song that's very important to me, and I hope we'll have time to play the whole thing at the end of the presentation. Um, it's a, a tribute to Bono's friend and roadie, Greg Carroll, who was killed when, a motor, when the motorcycle he was riding on an errand for the band was uh, collided with a car in Dublin, and he was killed. Carroll's death appeared to contribute to the power of the Joshua Tree album. Bono said about Carol's death that it brought gravitas to the recording of the Joshua Tree. We had to fill the hole in our heart with something very, very large. Indeed, we loved him so much. Uh, the song also pays homage to Chilean activist Victor Jara. Critics um, asked whether the band thought that it would change the situations for the better, and, and uh, U2 responded, Obano responded, when... when issues like this would arise, he would just say, well, we're basically just a noisy rock band to be enjoyed. But they did want to make people stop and think about the issues that they raised in their music. The popularity of the Joshua Tree album caused some American commentators to compare U2 to the Beatles. And Bono tried to diffuse this comparison by stating, we think we're overrated. Uh, during the American tour for the album, uh, Arizona Governor Evan Meekham had canceled Martin Luther King Day observance in the state, and Bono didn't like that, and they considered, uh, the band considered canceling their concerts in protest, but instead uh, they decided to make a financial contribution to a committee that was set up to reinstate the observance. Uh, the profits from the Joshua Tree album heightened Bono's struggle with maintaining his principles and, in, and avoiding the excesses of rock stardom. Uh, Bono's outspoken political views also caused the band to receive physical threats. Uh, one group threatened to kidnap Bono after he made comments about the Enniskillen bombing that left 11 dead and 63 injured. And the IRA supporters also attacked a vehicle that was carrying the band members. The greater attention that the band received, the greater their audience became for social issues. And at, at the 1988 Grammy Awards, where U2 received a couple of awards, uh, Bono got laughs with cracks about how hard it was to shoulder all the world's problems. Nevertheless, with an audience of 50 million viewers, he couldn't resist mentioning the plight of the oppressed people of South Africa and their anti-apartheid struggle. In October 1990, on the eve of the official reunification of Germany, U2 flew to Berlin to take part in the celebration. When they landed, they took to the streets to the, join the nearest parade they could find, um, they soon found out, however, that they had joined the wrong party. Uh, they found themselves marching with hardline communists <laughs> who were protesting for the wall to be rebuilt. Although they recognized that the public's attitude for slogan-waving rock stars was waning, U2 was not deterred from using satellite technology during their 1993 tour to show link-ups with people in the war-torn city of Sarajevo on a giant video wall. Uh, the extreme despair could sometimes leave a lead weight in the stomachs of audience members who had just come for a good night out, but U2 wanted people to see the unsanitized image for themselves. In 1998, U2 was eager to lend its support to the Good Friday Agreement, which was to uh, unite the differing political groups in Ireland. And there was a joint referendum scheduled in Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic on whether to, or not to implement the accord. Leaders of two opposing political parties had agreed to attend a benefit concert that U2 headlined, and, uh, and they were two of the architects of the agreement. 
and they agreed to be seen together at the event. So Bono called them both up on stage and raised their arms as heroes and, and, and uh, introduced them as, as the architects of the agreement. And a cheer rang out among the, the, the audience. The referendum passed in a landslide. In 1999, Bono became the spokesman for Jubilee 2000, which was an organization aiming at eradicating world poverty by persuading industrial nations to write off debts owed by third world countries. This appeared to be a marked shift for Bono from protests about war and violence in in isolated areas to now global issues of poverty and disease in undeveloped countries. And he's admitted that a, a factor that heavily influenced his involvement in these big global issues was the birth of his children. Uh, he and Ali ultimately had four children, two boys and two girls, and he recognized that his children were born into luxury. While in the 20th century there were uh, millions of, of people who were dying all over the, all over the world uh, because of disease and poverty, and this was a bleak contrast for him. To promote Jubilee 2000, Bono and 20,000 volunteers descended upon a G8 summit in Cologne and held hands around the building where the, where the leaders were meeting. Bono also traveled to Italy to meet with Pope John Paul II to get support for Jubilee 2000. Uh, they exchanged gifts, and Bono also gave uh, the Pope his classic wraparound shades. And, and the, the book that I read said that his biography said that all of the Vatican destroyed all the pictures, and somehow Jenny miraculously came up with one. <laughs> so I guess they destroyed all of them but the one that Jenny had. Bono also lobbied President Clinton and Republican leaders, British government, uh, Canadian government, and was successful in securing hundreds of millions of dollars in debt relief for third world countries. Um, When President Bush came into office and his tune about debt relief changed a little bit, and so Bono called himself the thorn in the shoe of President Bush. And that month, Time magazine made Bono their front cover. The United Nations uh, set up an event called NetAid to raise money for Jubilee 2000. Bono co-wrote a song with Wycliffe Jean called New Day that became the anthem for NetAid. And uh, the event also involved three benefit concerts staged simultaneously around the world and broadcast on satellite radio, TV, and the Internet. Bono performed at the American gig at Giant Stadium. In October 2000, U2 substantially returned to their musical roots after a couple of albums that were more dance pop, and they released the album All That You Can't Leave Behind. And they went back to more stripped-down guitars and drums and bass. Uh, the album also included strong social themes. Walk On, which is the, the fourth track on the album, was dedicated to the leader of the National League for Democracy in Burma. Uh, she was, had been under house arrest since July 1989. In 1990, she had won a democratic election in Burma, but the military had staged a coup and established a dictatorship that prevented her from taking office. The authorities in Burma banned the album because of the song and because of U2's open criticism of the government. And any person who was caught in possession of the al- album in Burma could face a 20-year jail sentence. In 2001, Bono became involved in the AIDS crisis facing South Africa, in in large part in opposition to the giant pharmaceutical companies who were making billions of dollars but refused to provide anti-AIDS drugs cheaply. In 2002, Bono and Bobby Shriver, along with activists from Jubilee 2000 campaign, established DATA, 
which is an acronym for Debt AIDS Trade Africa. Data aimed to eradicate poverty and AIDS by encouraging Americans to contact senators and other legislators. In 2004, Bono co-founded the One Campaign, an international nonprofit advocacy organization that fights extreme poverty and preventable disease, particularly in Africa. One is largely an internet-based campaign, but it does sometimes host events. And the campaign doesn't ask for public donations. Uh, they say, we're asking for your voice. One works with volunteer campaigners in different markets to raise awareness and lobby governments to fight extreme poverty and, prevent, and preventable diseases. In 2005, Bob Geldof and Bono collaborated to organize the Live 8 project, uh, which was a string of concerts to benefit global anti-poverty. In 2004, 2005, Ali and Bono founded the Eden label. Eden, which is, which is nude, spelled backwards, uh, suggests natural and the Garden of Eden. And it was intended to bring positive change in Africa through fair trade-based relationship rather than through direct aid. Houston said they wanted to show that you can make a for-profit business where everybody in the chain is treated well. In 2006, Bono co-founded Product Red, which is a brand licensed to partner companies to engage the private sector in raising awareness and funds to eliminate HIV-AIDS in eight African countries. Each partner company, such as Nike, American Express, and Apple, um, creates a product with the Product Red logo. And in return for the opportunity to increase revenues through the Product Red license, up to 50% of the profits gained by each partner is donated to the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. And those programs still continue today. Um, so is Bono a rock star with a conscience, or is he a crusader who happens to be a rock star? There can be no doubt that U2 is one of the greatest bands in rock history. They've received 22 Grammy Awards, which is more than any other band. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2005. Uh, the band grossed $1.6 billion in ticket sales from 1990 to 2016, which is second only to the Rolling Stones. Uh, I think Bono is a genius lyrically. He also has uh, an amazing, uh, his phrasing is amazing. His ability to convey emotion is second to none. Um, in addition to the, the musical success in, uh, of the band, Bono has received numerous awards for his phil phil philanthropy. Tongue's a little tied. In December 2008, Bono was given the annual Man of Peace Prize by the Nobel Prize laureates in Paris, France. Bono was granted an honorary knighthood by Queen Elizabeth II for his service to the music industry and for his humanitarian work. And he has been made a commander of the French Order of Arts and Letters. And the national journal named Bono is the most politically effective celebrity of all time. Uh, Bono is how I hope I would act if I had his talent. Um, I have his looks and charisma. <laughs> don't have the talent. But, uh, but Bono and you two certainly have their critics, those who mock them for, for feigning sainthood. Uh, but I don't doubt Bono's sincerity, and I admire his courage to stand up for his principles, even at the risk of alienating his fans. Uh, of making himself appear, appear obnoxious and, and even threats to his own safety. seems clear to me that from a fairly young age that he was a, a man who thought very deeply 
and who felt very deeply. He uses his incredible talent to convey messages through music that no ordinary speech could accomplish, which by itself would make him a great activist. In addition, he generously employs his enormous influence to not only contribute financially to great causes, but to persuade leaders at the highest levels of government and religion and ordinary citizens to engage in the causes that he supports. Uh, and I hope you'll see why I fell in love with Bono and, and you too, and why I have a bit of a man crush on Bono. <laughs> no, Jenny didn't know that. But. Thank you. Well, thanks for indulging me in sharing my presentation about Bono. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting rocktail of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for Rocktail Hour. If you think we're lame, please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and rate us on iTunes. And until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. Rock on.